Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, my culminator friends. And it is a double culmination situation because I have here, also double your pleasure, for the second time, my uh, my cousin, Adam Coleman, who has come so far and is basically really the king of all social media now. Uh, since we spoke maybe a year ago or something, uh, I, and I, I didn't really, you know, as I said to him before we went on, on uh, I went out on the air, but before we started recording, uh, I didn't really have any particular agenda, but I just feel it's it's been too long. And, you know, if you don't get a guy like this as frequently as possible, soon he'll be just out, of, he'll be out of reach and you'll see maybe last week I could have gotten him. So Adam, welcome back. Good to Good to see you. What's going on? A lot. <laughs> oh, wow. A lot's been going on. Tell uh, me. But thank you. Thank you for having me back on. I do My appreciate pleasure. it. Of course. Great to see you. I know a lot's going on, which was like, I, as I, as I acknowledged <laughs> just now, why I wanted to have you back because, you know, you, 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 ha you were, you were pushing your book. Your, I guess it was your, I don't know if you've had a book since then for all I know, or if you got going coming out, you'll tell us, but mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the one that you and I had, had, had discussed at Introducing the world to you. I don't know if you had done lots of podcasts before, but now I see you at op-eds from you. Um, I hear that you're gonna your face is gonna be on money soon. I just <laughs> but, now tell me. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna let you drive the train here. I always trust a Coleman and uh, among culminations. Speak. To yeah. You. So so basically, um, yeah. I think the last time I was on, I was having op-eds here and there, uh, but I've I've basically been weekly. Uh, writing for the New York Post. Um, wow. You know, yeah. Um, it And uh, even the story of me even getting connected with the New York Post was purely by accident, but it was a, it was a great accident. Um, I have a great relationship uh, with the Post and the editor and, and other writers on the editorial board and even, even other op-ed writers. Um, and so it's been, it's been a, a great journey, uh, starting with the New York Post and then um, finding other publications who are interested in, in seeing my work. Um, and obviously, you know, when you write a good op-ed, uh, some TV programs want to hear what you think about it on, on TV. So, you know, I've been on Fox News, uh, oh. Fox Business, uh, uh, on Varney on Fox Business, uh, News, Newsmax a couple times. Um, and it's just been it's been great, and even even international. Um, was it uh, Sky News Australia, and in uh, a couple of programs in the UK? Now I'm so looking here. I just want I want to throw great. this up because I, I I did such a hamana hamana job on remembering the name of your book. So there <laughs> there, there it is. That's still the book. That's that's the the book uh, that we discussed last time. But you know, I imagine that. Uh, Oh, it's join the club pop up. 
but let people go to the site themselves and if they want to join the club what 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 is it about it what is it that you think has 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 been a secret to your um to all these opportunities coming up for you i think the secret has been um being genuine um, no, no try again no more genuine than me. <laughs> no one more genuine than me and i'm i i'm i've never been on varney any the nothing you know what it is i think it's because you're black i think i mean not gonna lie i think depending on the topic i'm writing about yeah um i can i know and we're adults we're not stupid you know when you're a part of a particular demographic you get allowances to talk about certain things um you, and so I, Brad, there's a lot of different ways of interpreting that you can say things you can make observations and say things about things that others mm -hmm. of us can't. Right. And I even though we all to, see the same thing. And I'll try to get you to do some of that today. Like, oh God. I don't think it'll be hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a very obvious thing with with if you're within a particular group, like if you're a woman, it's a lot easier for you to critique other women because you're a woman. Um, but if as a man, if I say the same things as this woman might say. It can be seen as being, you know, something else or non-genuine or something of that nature. So, so, so yeah. But, so, but so the flip side of that, right, is when you are perceived or accused of being a token. Mm -hmm. In the case of black, so so for your Jewish, they'll call you a capo. If mm. you are, if you're black, they'll call you an Uncle Tom. I don't know what they call you if you're a woman and you're on the wrong side of issues. Uh, uh, a pick me. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, if if you are a woman and you say like, "Hey, I think men should be treated fairly, and maybe we should cater to men sometimes," you you'll be called a pick me. Like you're being you're trying oh, to oh, be pick, chosen. Pick me, pick me, Monty. A pick me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll be see. You know, I'm showing my age. I'm I'm not up on all the on all the hashtags. Okay, so it's a it's a pick. That's what they call chicks that do that. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, I mean, I mean. I guess you can understand why that works. I mean, let's put aside mm -hmm. the accusations of being a token or Uncle Tom. You can't, there's no real way to respond to that, right? I mean, no, I'm no. not. I'm just, all you can really say is, look, I'm calling him like I see him. I and, and in your case, I mean, I remember when we talked about your book, you're not like a guy who comes out of the upper, you know, the black upper middle class, and you're coming here to lecture inner city you know blacks about how they should how you know how they should live mm -hmm. um you you really went through the dysfunction you experienced it you lived it all you can really do and this is like in the you know similarly to 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 what clarence thomas can do for example is say here's my authentic experience uh you know whether you your inclination of whether or not to buy it is probably predetermined by your whether or not you like what I have to say. It, it, that's the way the game is played now, you know. <laughs> but but obviously you're doing it right because it's not merely good enough. You know there there are lot there are lots of people in every category who want to do an you know as an African American as a Jew as a as a as a mm -hmm. does, you know you're obviously really hitting notes that are justifying your being asked to do it again 
Yeah, I think um, there's there's two aspects to, I think, what makes me a little bit unique. Um, I think the one aspect is I'm obsessed with communication. So I'm very careful with my words. I'm very careful with um, how I say stuff uh, in writings. Uh, I try not to use hyperbolic language, but I try to use clever language. Um, I don't shy away, shy away from using strong language when it's necessary to be strong, uh, but I'm not flippant uh, about certain things either. So I'm very, very careful with the language that I use, the words that I use, um, how I respond to people or if I respond to people. Um, I, have, I have actually general rules of engagement, especially on a place like Twitter. Um, but my number one rule is I, I don't engage in um, bad faith conversations with people. That's that's just as simple as that. Bad faith, in other words, if they demonstrate bad faith or you, I mean, it's a given that you yourself don't, you're not going to come here and say, oh, I like to, I, I like to engage people in bad faith and fool them and then sandbag them. What you're saying is right. that you, you can tell you when someone's bullshitting you or trying to trap you, you simply don't, you simply won't have a conversation. Right. Um, I am. And so the second thing is I'm obsessed with psychology. Right. And I'm obsessed with human behavior. You know, that's why I talk a lot about it in my book. Um, as far as how people respond, the certain words that you use and people respond in a particular way, how they initiate a conversation. So even in a place like Twitter, Twitter to me is kind of like uh, it's it's like a, a kind of like a human experiment. Right. And you get to monitor people and you get to watch how people respond in a particular way and how they approach a conversation or if there's a conversation that could even be started. And so I just watch. And if someone says something, uh, even if I disagree with them, but I can tell it's of good faith, I'll have a conversation with them. It's when it turns into them trying to uh, move the goalpost or switch topics, um, or obviously use insults, um, you know, call me stupid, you know, st stuff like that. Then I say, I literally tell them, this is a bad faith conversation. Uh, I'm done. And, and that's it. I just end it. You know, I don't argue with blue checks. I don't, I don't argue with people who are obviously, blue I, checks. I don't like... Yeah. Okay. Update. Update your phraseology. That no longer means. Oh that. yeah, that is. <laughs> <laughs> or should I should I call them? I don't. I don't argue with legacy blue checks. <laughs> right, but, but in other words, you you take a really straightforward approach, and this is anyone who's ever spoken to you yeah. would 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 not be surprised because that's your you know you're like you said you someone who write who's a writer someone who writes a lot. Mm -hmm. You understand the value of language, you understand the value of rhetoric, but your approach is to be as straightforward as possible, rather, which I can't say is mine. I will sometimes play games with people when I, in other words, I have the same radar as you. Mm -hmm. You've seen me do this. I'll tease them out a little bit more, just as I would do if I were deposing someone or, or, or cross-examining them on the stand. And, and the people, it's so funny, people, no, Ron, that's not... Don't you see what they're <laughs> don't, don't, Trust me, I do know what I'm doing. <laughs> okay, so that's why people like you. But that was easy. People always liked you. But it, I'm I'm really, you know, I'm I'm 
I'm really pleased that you really, you know, that you have established this persona uh, as, and why am I pleased personally? Because I, I, I know you and I don't necessarily know, I don't even know Ben Shapiro when I work for him. I mean, I mean, he's, <laughs> he's a client, he's, he's a, his company's a client firm, but there's definitely stuff going on that we could talk, talk about that's relevant. But before we get to that, I guess the question is, you know, I, I think you, you just said you, your op-eds are not all about as a black man, as a black man, as a black man, far from it. You have well-developed opinions on, on things uh, that are obviously original enough to be run by these legacy media companies. Um, and I don't want it in any way, you know, this conversation to, to, to be limited to that, but have you found yourself in a position where you are, you know, as you sort of get um, promoted to the rank of pundit, being challenged to write about topics that you haven't necessarily given a lot of thought to? Do you, do you, how, how do you react to that? Um, so the good thing is I have a, a well-rounded amount of knowledge about a, a bunch of different things. Um, and also, my my good relationship with uh, especially the editor of the New York Post, she knows where my strengths are and where they aren't, um, and we discuss things. and And sometimes she pitches things to me, and we discuss it, and I'm able to write something about it. Um, I think the the big key about writing up eds has been, what's the angle, you know? Because I don't I don't want to say the same thing that everybody else says, and I do see things differently. So I'm not forcing something just to force it, but it, if everybody's talking about everything over here and I'm like, but the obvious thing to me is everything on the other side. Why aren't we talking about that? And I think that is the area where people are interested in because, uh, you know, for every hundred op-ed that's sent in saying the same thing, that one that's not sticks out to people. And so I think for me, I've been, I've been hitting the note on things that haven't been obvious to other people, but it's obvious to me. Um, and that's making it unique. As far as topics go, uh, especially when we talk about race, you know, it's interesting in the very beginning when I started actually writing op-eds for other publications and race was the topic, I would do it because obviously I, I wrote a book, you know, revolving around race. But to me, like race is the least interesting thing to write about. Because to me, race is so obvious. You know, it's just kind of like, yeah, you know, but people are people. Like, <laughs> you know, we might look a little different, but guess what? We still essentially want the same stuff. People are people. We're complicated. I mean, but that's actually a radical statement to make in 2022. Not among normal people, not, yeah. but among the people who dominate the cultural and political conversation. Right. And because it's almost as offensive as saying all lives matter. <laughs> imagine could you imagine if all lives actually mattered um and you know it's amazing you know this is just a banal observation but whoever whoever thought we would we would we would, we would be here mm -hmm. all right go please but you you were not done with with, with the arc of, of what you were explaining now yeah uh, i was in the very beginning i was concerned about being kind of like typecasted i think that's the best way of putting it where I only give right-leaning commentary about race. 
And I didn't want to do that. You know, and because... in fact, if you did do that, then you would be guilty. Even yeah. as, as heartfelt as it might be, you would be filling the role of a token for right-wing outfits. Right. Right, exactly. So I, I didn't want that to be it. But at the same time, I didn't shy away from it. And part of the reason, uh, this might sound very kind of flippant, but the, part of the reason why I said, you know what, I'll, I'll do these articles is because I feel the way that most people talk about race, as simple as I see it, is in a dumb way. Like even people I agree with, they talk about race in such, in such a way that they don't actually complete their argument uh, about a variety of topics. It, it's so... <laughs> I'm. I. I. Exp I want to hear what you. What you mean by that? Because I don't know. I maybe I see it every day, but I, I'm curious what you're talking yeah. about. So, I'm trying to think of like a, a good example, like Black Lives Matter, right? Uh, you know, people on the right say the same thing about Black Lives Matter, same thing, and uh, even even actually something I'm very passionate about, which is the nuclear family. They say the same lines about the nuclear family, but they only give like the surface layer, right? And it and they repeat it over and over. And it to me, it's dumb because you don't complete the sentence, like you don't complete the matter. But why? Like Black Lives Matter is terrible. Black Lives Matter is racist. Black Lives Matter is fraud. Okay, why are they terrible? Why are they a fraud? They don't dive deeper into that. And even something as essential as the nuclear family to me. They just say it like everybody's supposed to know why the nuclear family is important. And that was like one of the things that I wanted to dive into my book is to explain why the nuclear family is important, right? To talk about why all the reasons why it's beneficial for children. Like they, they just, there's too much rhetoric on the surface there and there's not enough depth. And to me, it's, it's dumb to keep going with that approach. That's why I say like, it's stupid because no one's completing the damn sentence. But, <laughs> you know, just go a little bit further, like not too far, go a little bit further and explain why it, it is essential that mothers and fathers raise their children. Like as simple as it, it sounds obvious to everybody else, but apparently it isn't. And, and the left is creating a whole narrative as to why it's not. So if they are creating a whole is know, that really ideology, true? Are, are they in other words, yeah. you're you're saying that that if you look at the at the rhetoric used by the left, they're going beyond the mere assertion of positions, but are actually making principled arguments or or, or what appear to be principled arguments or something like that. That's your take. That's that's fascinating to me because what I yeah. see is a, is the slinging of really heavy handed memes. Like if you don't agree with our point of uh, tropes, I mean, not memes. Um, if you don't agree with our point of view on same sex marriage, you're a hater. You're a, you, you hate, you're a hate person. Mm -hmm. um, you're saying that Ron, don't be thrown off by that. It, the left is actually succeeding in the culture war by doing something better than that. Yeah, it's two, it's like, it's two fronts, right? So it's like a war, you have the soldiers up front who are shooting the bullets at people. But then you have the generals who are doing the strategizing. And so I kind of see like the academia that, you know, aspect of it as giving the strategy as to why the nuclear family isn't good as to why uh, 
uh, marriage is for the patriarchy. You know, they're giving all these ideological reasonings to separate families, right? And listen, you can say things all different types of ways and they sound great if you know how to master the language, right? And people buy it. People buy all, all types of things. If you say it in a particular way that appeals to them, if you appeal to a particular demographic, that's why feminism is very attractive to certain women because they say it in a particular way that appeals to them. Um, and they also say it to women who are uh, victims of, of some sort of abuse from a man. So it's, it's a validating force for a lot of women too, who have been through uh, actual trauma involving men. Um, but overall, what I'm saying is they're creating an entire ideolo ideological framework surrounding uh, women choosing to step away from marriage uh, and why it doesn't matter either way, whether the kid is in a marriage or outside of a marriage, uh, you do what's best for you and the child will be fine either way, right? It's a very flippant way about family planning. Matter of fact, you don't even need to plan the family. Uh, you just do whatever you like. It's, it's, a very, um, it's a very loose way about advocating to women to do whatever they want. And then we still have the aspect of our culture where we kind of preach to men that being a player is, is perfectly fine. And so those two things come together, <laughs> don't do very well. Um, but I, I, think, I think there's a whole ideological framework surrounding women doing everything that they want in spite of what it may actually, uh, or how it may actually impact their children. And actually many times they're being lied to about how it actually does impact their children, right? And, and that's why I tell my personal story about growing up in a single parent home, you know, I'm honest about my mother choosing a man who was married, right? Who she never wanted to get married. She purposely chose a man who was unavailable and she had two children with him, right? And so there's, there's no societal penalty for my mom doing this. She's strong and she raised us and here we are. And look at me, I'm an author today. And she gets the bonus credits, but my life was a struggle. Right, my life was a struggle because she didn't family plan. No matter how much I love my mom, I can't ignore. Well, it sounds like she did that plan. Part. Sounds like she did plan, but she she chose a, a shitty plan. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I yeah. mean, what you yeah. just said was that she she didn't want to get married. She she made a point of choosing a guy who uh, she knew would 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 never be able to be her husband. She didn't want a husband, but she did want to have his children. That's true. It was a bad plan. Yeah. <laughs> That's a bad plan. That's a bad plan. But yeah, um, you know, as much as we say, like, you know, deadbeat dads, we have to sometimes question our moms and the choices of our moms as well, right? And I feel like if you love people, you criticize them. And I love my mom, so I'm, I criticize my mom, you know, and I criticize the actions of my father as well, because despite him being married and having two kids out of, outside of his marriage, we're here. So he has to be involved in our life somehow and take care of us. But the likeliness of that happening was going to be small in the first place. That's the whole point. And yeah, that causes that, you know, people don't really appreciate. What, going back to what you said a few minutes ago, that people are mm -hmm. people. Not only does that mean that white people and black people are both people, but that every person is still endowed with a 
natural feelings and natural attachments and natural desires that when they are not met are going to cause either trauma or pain or dysfunction, maybe mm -hmm. eventually greatness because they're overcome, but they're not what what the lesson is that I think you're trying to teach is they're not the way to go by choice. If 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 life presents you with that, mm -hmm. then you make as much lemonade as possible. But to right. go into the lemonade business when you've bought a lemon grove, you know, is is probably you know not the best idea. I mean, I know someone who, you know, who who grew up raised by his uh, raised by his single mother and i used to ask him did you ever try to find your father and he said i really wasn't interested in finding my father because he he, he knew that i existed and he didn't look for me yeah yeah um that's gotta hurt I that's got yeah, to undermine your your your, your self-confidence in life. Yeah. I used to ask the question, and I, I think I know the answer now, and I think most people agree with me, but I used to ask the question, what's worse, not knowing who your father is or knowing who your father is, but he still chose to neglect you. And the second, you know, sure. he knows who you are, but he chose to neglect you. And that's that's my life situation, because now you're faced with all different types of questions as to why did he choose not to be involved in your life? And there's yeah. a fundamental, no matter what, how you rationalize, no matter how many studies you have, if you don't think that a child, and we're all still children, mm -hmm. <laughs> feels that lack, you're kidding yourself. You, then you've never met a human being in your life. Right. That hole will never be healed. Everything around it can be healed. You can develop other strengths to make up for it. But that hole can never be healed. Yeah. Um, you know, I've said it as much as I, you know, I have a chapter in my in my book where I'm very open and honest about how I feel about my father and not being there. Um, and my father passed away a number of years ago. But if my father was alive and he was to call me and say, hey, I'm sorry, and apologize and wants to move forward, I'd accept, right? And, and it's because it's complicated. It's a complicated matter. You want to, you want to be that child who can look up to his father. You, you know, you, you want that in your life. You know, you want your father to be proud of you. And my father's no longer here. Uh, you know, when he was alive, the last time I spoke with him, I was 21. Um, I'm 38 today. And he just wasn't interested. I called him. And from that moment, I said, why am I trying? Because he doesn't seem very interested in talking to me. And of course, the complication and the, the universal aspect of the feeling is a two-way street. He, notwithstanding that he made choices that resulted in the existence of you, mm -hmm. he's obviously, he was obviously greatly conflicted about that. And probably, I would imagine, reluctant to open up a channel of emotion and connection to someone that 
he had already decided was not he wasn't gonna that that wasn't gonna be one of his channels of caring and of feeling. This is the and and you know this is your your overall theme, right? I mean, these are the complications that come from these non-standard. But so, how did we address then this this suggestion that you could? Okay, so these are dysfunctional situations, but the reason that they're dysfunctional is precisely because we've set up the nuclear family as this arbitrary but normative model of how it should be. And the reason everyone's feeling so guilty, the reason everyone's so feeling so conflicted is because they've fallen out of that normative model. So let's pull mm -hmm. down the normative models and people won't feel guilty. And, and, and the guy who's your dad won't feel bad because... He didn't do anything wrong and he and and choices were made and, and you're what's what's the response to that i mean i don't know like the the first thing that kind of comes to my head is like the entire the, the entire conversation always appears to be about the adults right it always appears to be about well how i feel about this and and well i chose this and i did this and i did that but it never goes back to the kids, you know, in, in my, in, like how I hear all these different discussions when we talk about families, the families to me sounds like about the adults, what the adults want. Right. And whatever happens to the kids is what happens to the kids. Oh, okay. Another, uh, well, we'll I, okay. Expand on that a little bit for me because I'm not sure I, yeah. I get it. Yeah. Like, you're asserting, are you just, is it you're, you're asserting what, what, what you and I obviously both believe, I think, to be the truth, which is that the child, no matter who that child is, mm -hmm. wants his mommy and wants his daddy. Right. Right. Seems they, like a they, controversial thing to say, but it really shouldn't be. Right. It's, it's as simple as that to me. Um, I just think the adults complicate the matter. Right. And I think there is a selfish aspect surrounding adults as to why we legitimize certain behaviors, excuse certain behaviors. Um, you know, for example, when, when we have this narrative of I'm the mother and the father, right? Well, that sounds like a whole lot of coke to me. Like, why, why would you say something like that? Obviously, <laughs> you're not the father, right? You're the mother. And, and you're saying this to excuse something or someone or some behavior, right? But that mindset is ultimately what leads to your kid being affected by it. Because now he thinks or she thinks that, well, my mom was the mother and father. And so my my dad was irrelevant. You only really need one parent anyways. Like it just becomes this excuse factory. Well, in a world where two mommies or two daddies are considered to be two parents, mm -hmm. If we if we accept that as a norm, then the only thing you're talking about is quantity. But if we say that the normal experience and therefore the healthy experience for a child is to have a mommy and a daddy, one of whom the mommy is a lady and one of whom the daddy is a man okay 
then we can have the discussion that goes beyond quantity and saying that there's something about being a mother and having a mother that is qualitatively significant to a child's upbringing and success in life. Mm-hmm. And the same with having a dad. Fair? Yeah, that's fair. But that's another conversation that is being taken off the table from us. And it, it, you don't have to be, like I said, you know, before, if you if you object to that that paradigm that men and women are the same sex and it or that or that it doesn't matter to mm-hmm. to any two parents is the same as any other two parents even if it's just even if it is two you're called a hater as rather than someone who actually cares maybe even loves but wants this and wants to see people who need love which is children yeah. getting it in the but but is that really the case? I mean, after all, we know there are men who f- we certainly hear many times when my parents my parents had a terrible relationship, and when they got divorced, I was so much happier because my father was so abusive to my mother, or my mother was always coked up. Is it you know how do you, how do you and you in the worldview that you sort of sketched out on this topic which is really your core topic i see mm-hmm. how do you deal with that you know with, with with that dialogue so when i talk about the importance of fathers and mothers uh, you know obviously i'm talking about the importance of a healthy family dynamic um but i think you touched on it before there is something innate within us to understand where we come from um, if you grow up with just your father and your mother's not around, uh, you want to know where you came from. I've talked to people who are adopted. Most of them want to know where they came from. Even if it's a tragic, you know, you finally meet your, who your mother is and she's a hot mess, but you, at least you know where you came from, right? So there, there, is some, there is that aspect within us that we can't deny. And I think, I think it does people a disservice to deny that it exists. Now, the next question is, why does it exist? Because it's important. It's important. It's natural to understand this. It's natural to, un- to want to know where we come from so we can, we, can, um, we can figure out how it might apply to us in our life. What is our genetic history? What is our legacy? You know, all of these different things that we start asking our- ourselves, and I think they're extremely important. Um, as far as, you know, two mommies, two daddies, the, the second part comes into... Love is extremely important. And, and so, see, where, where am I on this list? <laughs> I got I got I'm waiting for your test results. I feel like I told you. <laughs> but, but this goes back, but, but you know, because what you, it's funny because you, you said, you said it exactly when I, when I went for that screen, which is someone like me, right? Who, whose family was, my my ancestors two or three generations ago on one side were mur- the victims of mass murder mm. uh, although i'm here today because you know my ancestors left poland and you know and those they left behind but the point is there's there's so little there, there's so little left of the world that they left behind that we don't know um really where we come from and my father uh, that's my mother's side and my mother's side I mean, on my father's side, 
I've got a little bit, all his people came here before the war. So they didn't have the experience of being destroyed, but they they came from these really backward parts of Europe where people just didn't keep the kind of record. And, and I spend, I don't have time now that way I used to, but you spend a lot of, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out where do I come from? Who are these, you know, can, can I find my relatives? Can I find my great grandparents? Is there some connection? People really just do, do want to connect uh, right. on a lot of, on a lot of different levels, which is why I said, I'm, I'm going to send you a DNA kit when we get offline and we're going to get, we're going to nail down this connection. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, go on back to you. I did interrupt you. I'm sorry. No, 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 it's okay. Um, no, I was just going to say that like basically what we, we agree on, there is a, there is a level of importance to understand our legacy and where we come from. And actually, if you, if you kind of think about it, it's, it revolves around identity, right? So part of your identity is where you come from, your history, your family history. And I understand why there is a, an identity aspect that's very, very important for Black Americans because a large amount of them came from slavery. And so there is that, where exactly did I come from? I know I'm an African-American, but where from? Where is that line? And so that's why there's this kind of mysterious love affair with a whole continent, because in some ways we are told we don't know where we came from. We, you know, There's no record, how do, how do I tell? And so now recently we have DNA tests and we can have like maybe a roundabout idea or we have some historical context to where most of the slaves who ended, ended up in America came from. But there's no direct lineage like a lot of different people have, right? We're a nation of immigrants, but we don't know where we exactly came from, where other, other people, you know, Italians might know exactly where in Italy they came from and their great grandmother and all this other stuff. But there, for a lot of Black Americans, not all Black Americans, because that's that's the narrative because we weren't all slaves, but for a lot of black Americans, they've, they've taken a hold of this identity of, of being the children, the lost children, you know, uh, a race of lost children who don't know exactly where they came from. Um, some of it's right and some of it's wrong. And is it possible that this is actually more powerful precisely because we don't have the mom and dad structure as we might have once had, I mean, you know, as we discussed in our in our in our first interview, mm -hmm. American blacks 50, 60 years ago, the, yes, there was dysfunction, but they were families. There were fathers. Uh, routine out of out of wedlock births were not routine. Mm -hmm. um, as and, and this is true for white americans also all these people my fiance my how long has he been your fiance 47 years how many <laughs> kids do you have with your fiance so we have so but but there is this desire to connect so right. if i'm not going to connect with a regular mom and dad and a mom-in-law and a father-in-law again maybe some of these idealized relationships are wishful thinking because we're also you know imperfect but Maybe I'll just skip over the lack of connection in the in the world around me right now and connect with, as you put it, with a continent where everyone, which is actually everyone's not even the same looking in Africa, any no. more than the same <laughs> looking in different parts of, of Europe or the Eurasian continent. I mean, 
no one's going to mistake a Nigerian for a, you know for a, for a uh, a Moroccan. That's for sure. Right. And I and I actually think that um, I think there's a crisis of identity that actually stems from two different places. So the crisis of identity, like I had a crisis of identity uh, in my in my twenties, trying to figure out where I come from. You know, like for example, my father is actually from Trinidad. And, but I have no association with Trinidad. I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't part of that family. So my feeling of being Trinidadian is only by name and, and I can claim it by DNA, but it's not, it's not in me. Um, and for some people, for black Americans who both parents are from America, um, but when they, they have that crisis of identity, just from understanding who their, who their father is, Right? Who is that guy? And then it leads them down this path of trying to figure out, well, who am I? What am I? Uh, what does it mean to be black? You know, all of these different things. Um, and I think sometimes that that crisis of identity that's created from the absence of a father ends up turning into a crisis a crisis of identity as to being the children or the descendants of slaves. Right. It just it, it keeps going farther and farther and they take on this this slavery victim, uh, you know, lost children of slaves kind of vision. Africa is the motherland, this whole big thing. And it, it just I, I just see a lot of I see a lot of black Americans, not obviously not all or most or anything like that. But there are a number of black Americans that I see where they're obsessed with identity. So so. Let me actually, as we end, believe it or not, can't believe how much time has passed. Didn't get to any of the topics I wanted to discuss, but <laughs> but no, but this was a ten times better. Mm -hmm. but I am going to get a little topical because right now there's this there's this um, pressure point out there between Jews or the Jews <laughs> and blacks or well-known blacks in entertainment which is not right. the same as the blacks. Um, and I, I, it just, while you were talking, it occurred to me, you know, notwithstanding what I talked about, you know, the, the, that, that gap of heredity, that gap of connection, that even I, who thank God, who had both parents and my mother's still alive, I still have her. And, you know, I grew up in a, a survivor family, but a, a healthy nuclear survivor family, just as healthy as you can be as a survivor family. <laughs> Um, right. But the Jews do have this connection. So what are we seeing happening right now? One is there's a generalized and uh, and uh, anger towards Jews coming from many blacks, which has existed for the for a very, very long time. Martin Luther King was aware of it. Malcolm X was aware of it uh, and, and, and was guilty of it. Um, and you know it, it's it's a, it's not a new story it, it, but of course there was also um this you're you're not the real jews we're the real jews mm -hmm. which is a psychological sickness okay but it makes me think that if you're casting about for a connection and then you see the jews who have the, so look i i'm representing a client who who is a jewish 
um, genealogist. This is this is his life's work. I mean, he's actually is a retired surgeon, but mm. this is the latest version. This is one volume, and he's connected like almost every Ashkenazic Jewish family back to you know thousands of hundreds, certainly hundreds of years. If you're going to just live in a fantasy world, and if you're going to be resentful. I wonder whether it's like I'm going to resent the Jews because the, because the Jews have this connection that we're lacking so much. It's portable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't depend because obviously the Jews are always getting, you know, uh, invitations to leave places for, for, for all kinds of reasons um, or feel the need to. Could this be some of that kind of existential identity you know, crisis that's being played out as well. What do you think? Absolutely, absolutely. I think, and this is this is one of those vulnerabilities that I I constantly bring up because race is is a vulnerability for Black Americans, right? There is an extra level of sensitivity towards it, and identity is wrapped up into race. So when you can when you know that race is the trigger for them you can manipulate them, right? When you know that these are people who are staunchly holding on uh, to the race and, and searching and searching for identity and identity markers to link them together, then you can inject all different types of stuff. Like the, the black Hebrew Israelite thing, to me, I heard it years ago and I was like, uh, what? <laughs> like, it just sounds so far-fetched, but listen, there's other stuff that exists within within like a subset of black culture, like the Hotep stuff. To me, it just sounds, it sounds so strange. It, and it's all, here's the thing. It sounds just like any other uh, actual, I know we say conspiracy theories, but it, it sounds like any other actual conspiracy theories. Like you say that everything you've ever learned was a lie. So that's the that has to be the premise, right? Right. So once you accept that, then you can accept what they're telling you, and and I think that this is a this is a real problem. Um, how big of a problem is it? Is a different story. And for I whom? Know. And for whom? Yeah, because I mean, one problem we do have, and I, and I'm going to let you off the hook after we you know we we fade out here because it's, it's going to be all night, but. It turns out that so much of what we did think was true has been a lie. Mm -hmm. We have re the the surface has been peeled back from so much in our lives, so much of what we grew up thinking to be the case about how the political system works, how the media works, how law enforcement works, how the courts works, how the, how the court works, courts work, how the justice system works have turned out to be lies. Right. But people are going from there to now let's make a complete leap into unreality and believe things that are absolutely lunatic, you know, lun but lunacy. But you can no longer say, you know, to, to me to just say to someone that's a conspiracy theory is that's meaningless because the conspiracies do have begun to kind of really play out into reality and then there's adam coleman sitting there calmly 
talking to people straightforwardly, not allowing yeah. himself to be manipulated. And I guess that's what you're bringing to the table at, is that you have conversations like this calmly and thoughtfully and with an open mind. Is there another book in the works? Yes. Um, Don't I tell me you're just collecting it. your other stuff. That's okay if you can do that. <laughs> A good writer sells everything as many times as possible. I'm not against that. No, no. Tell me what's going on. Yeah, I started writing it months ago. Then I, I just became too busy. And um, you have to be consistent with it. Um, but it's it's. I can just tell you this. It's going to be about saviorism. Um, so, you know, one side is the victim. The side is the saviorism aspect. Um, but it's going to tie into and events I'm, that have and happened. And only, only this political leader can save us. Only Donald Trump can save us. Only, you know, I don't know. That's what I'm experiencing, you know, in in my world is that people who I interact with and who I like and you know respect coming out with these these positions about only Trump is the only is the only way, and you know it's a problem, right? Yeah, it's it's a problem when you put all of your faith into a, a politician, um, especially a politician of all of all things. Right. Or, or and, Elon and, Musk is going to save us on Twitter. Right. I, I might be a little bit guilty of that myself because it's been so exciting seeing someone come in and at least having relatively honest conversations about what he sees and what he wants to do and what he, you know, what could be done with that environment. Yeah. And, and I think from a religious aspect, I'm seeing Christians uh, treat Trump like he's God walking earth. Like he's the, he has to be the one to save our society that is a lot to put on any particular person. And, and that is a, a lot of expectation. Who, despite his many talents, doesn't strike me as the all being. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he, I, you know, just. Yeah, I, he's flawed. He's flawed. So yeah. do you think you're going to be able to get back to the book maybe after the new year or something? Do you have a plan to get back to it? Uh, December. So, um, I actually, I, I tried quitting my job <laughs> and they, they rebuffed me uh, to, to just do less work basically. Um, but starting in December, I'm gonna have more free time to do more writing. Uh, so you're actually gonna see more of me. Good, um, I'm looking forward yeah. to it. Yeah. Adam, great talking with you. I'm glad the, I'm glad the conversation did go the way, the way it did because we ended up talking about things that are timeless mm -hmm. and are universal which is the secret to uh, your God, God, please continued success. Thanks for Thank culminating. You. Like I said, folks, you had your double culmination culmination today and count yourselves very fortunate indeed for it. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to the culmination podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.